And I think pronunciation is a, it's a weird area, mm-hmm. you know? Like, so we ran this Ina Garten profile and in the course of producing it, a number of people refer to her as Ina Garten. That's how I thought it was pronounced. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you only ever see it in print, you have no indicator that it's Ina. This week on The Eater Upsell, we're going to be joined by Garrett Oliver, the creative force behind Brooklyn Brewery. Brooklyn Brewery. Those are like the two hippest possible words right now. I have three of their beers in my fridge at this very moment. I have three of their beers in my body at this very moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the way you pronounce an I. You know, like, especially if it's in three letters with like I-N-A, like Christina is Christina, not Christina, (laughs) you know? So like it made sense. But then for someone who knows that it's Ina, like if you watch the show, you know, it's Ina because she says her name out loud. But like then it grates and it feels totally wrong. And it's like this communication that whoever is saying it wrong is not in the club. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like you're not in the insider group, even if you like own all billion of her cookbooks. This, like mispronouncing someone's name is the worst possible thing you can do. And like you have people like Bourdain, Bourdain, or like Guy Fieri. No, it's Guy Fieri. Right. Like the <laughs> Italian sort of the R becomes a D. Like Giada De Laurentiis who like says like spaghetti instead of spaghetti. <laughs> right. Well, this is interesting. Uh, I think we've in- inadvertently hit on an interesting subject here, which is that if I'm really thinking about it, the food world and specifically food journalism there's a lot of different um, pronunciations for words, especially food words. Yes. And I think that, uh, you know, how hard you go for it kind of is, a, you know, shows your mettle as a real food writer. You know, like, do you call it endive? Oh, yeah. Or endive. Mm-hmm. I, I used to say, like, when I was a kid, because I grew up in a sort of snobby family, I remember at Passover, <laughs> there was like, at, like endive was on the Seder plate because it's a bitter vegetable and it was my turn to read the passage and I said endive and immediately I felt like the temperature in the room changed. I was like nine years old and it was like, I, it was the first time I realized what a major weird cultural faux pas felt like at a very young, impressionable age and ever since then I've said endive instead of endive because like you don't want to be that person who sounds like you've come back from your like junior year abroad in Chile. Right. You know? Yeah. In Guatemala. Right, exactly. <laughs> or like Barcelona. Like the whole, like, I mean, yes, like words should be pronounced the way they should be pronounced when you're speaking the language, but then, you know, but names are a different story. Names are weird. Yeah. Like you can say macaroon or macaron or macaron, but like, and that's up to you. And like, you can judge someone depending on how French they want to go with that word. But, you know, calling Guy Fieri, like he's like Fieri, like full like Midwestern with like the, you know, totally erotic R. Versus like saying it the way he wants to say it, which is Fieri. Like you get to choose what your name is, I think. Yeah, it's kind of funny though. I mean, absolutely you do. You get to choose how it's pronounced. Um, it's just kind of funny though. Like uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm half Italian, but I've never actually heard anybody kind of give that treatment to their name. The Fieri. <laughs> No, good to be here. Do you I mean, live in uh, Brooklyn? I, I do. I guess I you in, have to. Uh, Barham Hill. Really? Yeah, I'm a 22-year 20, resident of Barham Hill. So like since before it was... Since way before when Smith Street was a dark, dangerous place to which you did not <laughs> go at night under any circumstances uh, since that th- those days. Wow. Yeah. 
weird how Brooklyn, like, I mean, this is, I don't know why I'm even saying this. It's like the dumbest thing to say, but like, it's weird how Brooklyn happened. No, like Dean Street between, well, you know, same in Williamsburg, but you know, uh, you know, I'm on Bond Street. I'm basically, if you know the restaurant Rucola. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. You know, I live right there. That whole block was half empty. It was abandoned, like burnt out buildings when I moved there. Wow. You know, so just to give you some idea. The, the, where, and now they're like where eight Ruc and a half million dollars. Where Rucola is now was until only until Rucola moved in. It was an illegal sublet and it had bed sheets in the windows. Uh, uh, the grill work was all there. It looked <laughs> like that, but there were bed sheets in the windows for, you know, 15, 16 years. Because someone uh, lived uh, there? Because somebody lived there and it was illegal, but they just, and they had no curtains and they were like living like in a cat box. Wow. You know, in that space. So how do you get to Brooklyn Brewery? Do you do you take the G train? I used to take the G train. Now I drive because it saves. I mean, yeah. As you know, the, the you there's know, no the, efficient way. There's no there's no efficient way. I mean, with, without the traffic, I can get to the brewery in twelve minutes. Wow. Whoa. You know, as so, the crow flies. Wait, it's where not exactly very far. is the brewery's on Wythe, right? The brewery's on well, corner of Wythe and Eleventh. Right. Okay. So the hottest corner in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, like when I was first uh, when I was first there. If you walked from the brewery to the subway and you saw anybody after dark, <laughs> you would cross the street to the other side. There was nobody there who was there to do you any good. Wow. Nobody. There's nothing. Well, there weren't even any, there weren't any ATMs in the neighborhood until early 2000s. Like if you needed money, you had to go to Manhattan. Oh my god. I, it's, <laughs> hard, it's hard to fathom that actually. <laughs> That's yeah, such yeah. a like like a, a specific detail that says so much. Like if you needed, yeah, money, I mean, but you, you know, by, by that time, I mean, I know it was a while ago, but by that time, you know, there there, there were like three ATMs on every block in Manhattan, yeah, um, and in most of Brooklyn too. But Williamsburg was it was a wasteland, you know, when it comes to uh, to that. There were a few good things, but yeah, not much. I was just up there this past weekend for taste talks, and like the exact corners of the brewery and. I don't, I live in like Crown Heights, Prospect Heights, so I don't go up to Williamsburg very often. And I forget how incredibly beautiful everyone is. And also that they literally look like they're wearing Halloween costumes. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting. It, it does, uh, I mean, you know, you go there at the weekend and it's like Disneyland. It's, it's so it's, weird. It's, it's kind of like, I remember I used to try to avoid like being in the West Village at the weekend <laughs> and like you'd walk down Bleecker Street and it was just like a wash of people. You couldn't even get a car down the street. And now Williamsburg at the weekend looks just like that. And I have this hypothesis. But they just have different outfits on. I have this theory that like, like people who don't live in Williamsburg get dressed up to go to Williamsburg, like they wear like hipster drag and they'll be like, oh, how can I like wear the strangest, most like ugly 90s clothing possible to go like wander this neighborhood for six well, hours? Well, the funny thing for me is that like they come like dressed as me, <laughs> you know, because like, no, I mean, I've been wearing like, okay, I have a, a straw hat that I had made uh, 20 years ago. Okay. Now, you know, it's kind of like a signature in a way, like when I, I mean, I was just told by our Brazilian importer, like, be sure to bring the hat when you come. Everybody expects to see the hat. It's your brand. It has it has its own Twitter feed. I don't even know who started it. Um, <laughs> What's it? Garrett Oliver's hat. That's it's, it's called it's called Garrett's hat. Yeah. Oh my god. 
I was uh, I was on stage in uh, in Edinburgh, you know, doing. Uh, I was the keynote speaker for the European Beer Bloggers Conference, and somewhere in the middle of that, somebody started a blog, you know, the uh, a Twitter feed that was Garrett's hat, and everywhere that I went. That they were also in the room, so there'd be a picture of me wearing the hat. Say, hey, this is Garrett's hat. We're now at whatever bar. That's terrifying. But you know, you don't know who it is because you're in a room full of loggers, so it could be anybody. Um, and I still don't know who it is, but I think it's very funny. That's some like early days of Twitter shenanigans, right there. Oh you my know? god! But it was only like you know three or four years ago. But oh. the fun, but the funny thing is, like that hat. You know, it's a really, really well-made hat. I'm trying to talk the uh, uh, the hat maker into making me a new one because it's got a little worn out now because it's been everywhere. But uh, now, like, you have good in hats selling kind of cheap knockoffs of something similar uh, for all the kids. And for a long time, I saw everybody started to show up wearing stuff that looked kind of like mine, and I stopped wearing it because I didn't want it to look like everybody else. And then I kind of realized, like, this hat is about 40 times better than that thing's going to last two years and fall apart on your head. This is like the real thing. Wow. So, were they, wait, do you feel like they were wearing it to dress like you intentionally? Not or me, just not like, me personally. Oh, okay. But it's like, uh, you know, if you have a certain way that you, that you look, I mean, there were people who, you know, lived in that part of Brooklyn who did look like this before, mm-hmm. you know, and there were like a few of them. And then all these other people show up basically dressed in a drag of who was there before yeah you know so you know it's kind of it's kind of strange what on that note i think this is a good opportunity to introduce our guests on the show today garrett oliver is the brewmaster and proprietor of brooklyn brewery not proprietor partial tiny you know little sliver of propriety uh uh of uh of brooklyn brewery but i am brewmaster and you're also a james beard award winner for best what is it? Spe- outstanding spirits, professional. I'm. I'm. I think it was, I think they have wine and beer that and was spirits it. as part part that of it. Was, it was, yeah, that was fun. That that's a, that was a big deal. I I remember the room being extremely excited when you won that award. People were stoked. Yeah. Well, well welcome welcome to the Eater Upsell, Garrett. Well, good to be here. We're really happy to have you. Yeah. So, what I'm curious is, growing up, were you someone who loved food? Were you someone who was? Did you love beer? How did it all start for you? I guess you, you like, can't how did grow you up loving beer. Well, kids right? drink beer sometimes. Yeah, I, I, did, <laughs> I did, and I hated it. Um, I, I loved food. You know, I mean, I'm kind of like a weird, we were weird kids. We didn't realize how strange we were, but I'm from originally from Hollis, Queens. So, you know, way out there, not, too, not so far from the Nassau border. So you have to imagine, you know, we are a African-American family growing up in the 70s, my dad was an advertising executive, but his big hobby was to go hunting uh, at the weekend with some pretty rough guys from like upstate. I don't even know how he knew them. Some of them were missing fingers from like canning factories or whatever else. And we would go out with our dogs and sometimes horses and we would, uh, we would hunt birds. We, we hunted pheasant, chucker partridge, and quail. And my father was a very, very good cook. Um, Where would you guys go hunting? Everywhere from Somers, New York, all the way up to the Nassau border, uh, out to Long Island. Believe it or not, in those days, and it was a long time ago, uh, you could hunt pheasant on Long Island, and we did. It feels very grand. Like a round quogue. <laughs> but the, the funny thing is that it, like, it wasn't considered grand back then. It's like everybody up there. I mean, you're talking about upstate New York. Yeah. These were, these were some pretty rough 
you know, rough and tumble guys, but everybody went out hunting at the weekend. That's what you did. I mean, it's kind of like a bit red state, you yeah. know. It's good well, free yeah. activity. It's a free activity, and you get you get dinner out and of it, it. And it involves guns, which is and you like know. you know, if you're if if, if you're a twelve year old kid, there is nothing better in the world. <laughs> Did your dad let you like shoot the gun? Did you? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But uh, you know, he was uh, you know absolutely you know rabid about uh, uh, thankfully about gun safety. And I'll never forget when he, you know, he showed me the first time I was about to shoot, he took a big can of tomatoes. And this was like a, a hard, one of those old hard tin cans, not like a flimsy, you know, modern can. The thing was like hard as a rock. And uh, it said whole, you know, whole tomatoes. And he put it on the ground, you know, and he said, shoot that can. And he put the tin can on the ground and I started backing up. He's like, no, don't back up right here, you know, 10 feet away, you know, shoot it. And I shot the can, and he said, now find me some tomato. And there was nothing but like a red mist hanging in the air, and the can is, was inside out. And he said, that can is about as hard as your head, and those tomatoes are your brains. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That is so heavy. And, and, <laughs> and, and it was like, oh, the gun is fun, but you need to take this really, really seriously. Never forgot it. That's like some, that's some like seriously hands on parenting. Well, the thing is, like, if you're going to put a gun in the hands of like a 12 oh, or 13 yeah, year no. old, that's the kind of conversation you really want to have. That's some good um, strategy. So, it reminds me of that, like, this is your brain on drugs commercial. You know? Yeah, well, like, we didn't really listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was like sizzling. That sounds cool. So, did that get you more or less into the, the, the hunting there? Oh, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I mean, we would come home, uh, you know, we'd be out there on horseback with like the rain would literally be freezing on our hats. But you were on horseback? Uh, yeah, sometimes we were on horseback, yeah. This is amazing. You know, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it was, I didn't think of it as being as strange, you know, uh, as it was. But, it, you know, for me, it's all part of like kind of being, you know, the, the special thing of being uh, from New York. So, you know, we never thought about the fact that, you know, we grew up with Italian food, you know, from our neighbors. And, uh, you know, I get the Zeppoli on the way home from, you know, from school with the powdered sugar on top. And we ate, you know, kind of Chinese uh, dishes, uh, that's in parentheses, uh, from, uh, uh, or quotation marks, from, from the 70s, like Ik Fu Yang, right. you know, and things like that uh, all the time. You know, we, we, you know, we even ate sushi, which people didn't really eat much back then. Um, and we had this, you know, my, my great aunt made chopped liver, which we didn't think of as being somehow Jewish. It was just like something that she made. Um, and so we had this very mixed, you know, kind of uh, uh, cultural experience, which I'm uh, very grateful for now. And and hunting pheasant on horseback just sort of fits. I guess that makes sense. I mean, like, you know, if if everything is normal and everything is normal. Yeah, I guess, you know, my dad probably met them on some, you know, commercial shoot or something. He would do television commercials and things and probably got to like them. And, you know, he was working on Madison Avenue in a pretty rarefied. I mean, if you watch Mad Men, that is exactly the, the work world that my dad, you know, uh, came up in. You know, which, you know, as an African-American doing that in the 70s was not only unusual, but very difficult. Um, and so, you know, we had various spheres that didn't really meet up with each other. Um, and when you, you know, when you met these guys, it was like, Dad, why well, does the guy have four fingers? It's like, oh, he works in the cannery, and every once in a while somebody loses a finger. 
And you're like, yeah, we didn't meet people who <laughs> were mangled by machinery in factories otherwise, you know. But um, it was a it was a good look at uh, you know at real life, um, you know. And I'm, uh, like I said, I'm very grateful for it. But I think that's where my cooking head, you know, uh, comes from. You know, watching him do reductions, and you know, we do the quail. I'd have to clean everything, so we clean the quail, and then uh, you know, he'd mount it in a white wine sauce. Wow. You know, I still remember what it feels like to take a you know, warm bird and, you know, pluck the insides out. You know, it's not so great. Not so great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing around these teenage years, you also caught the film bug because you went to film school. Is that right? Yeah, I did go to film school, you know, but it wasn't, uh, you know, I, like most kids, I kind of promised myself I wasn't going to do what my dad did, but then I kind of sort of did. I was, you know, excited by music. At the time, MP- MTV was getting going, music videos, uh, you know, in film. You know, I was always very visual. So, um, you know, it, it was always going to be some form of communication. And uh, visual communication seemed, you know, the most interesting to me. So my degree is actually in broadcasting and film. So how do you make the leap from communicating through film to communicating through beer? Well, to me, you know, in a certain way, they are exactly the same. Um, You know, basically, you have these two halves of your brain, if you like, and it's half art and half science. And uh, if you don't have both of these things, you can't do the job. And I think of, uh, if I look at beer, and you look at, uh, say, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster, you know, summer blockbuster, and everything's perfect. You know, the, the, the sound is perfect. The color is perfect. The actor's teeth are perfect. The hair is perfect. The car chase, chase is perfect. But there's no plot development. You know, no one seems to work on a script. There's like eight people who wrote this script. And it was like, you know, through a whole mill and then through uh, focus groups and whatever else. And the thing comes out the other end. And you're, you know, you'll never care about any of those characters. And when you leave the theater, that's two hours of your life you'll never get back. And that's mass market American beer. It's all the money and all the science and no soul whatsoever and essentially worthless. And so uh, on the other hand, you can watch a student film and have it drive you out of your head. I mean, there's a lot of passion. Someone actually wrote something here. Uh, uh, and it's beautiful, but maybe the filmmaker doesn't really know how to put the story on the screen. So the color correction is bad. You're sitting there, you're watching, where's that weird light coming from, which doesn't have any natural source. Um, you know, the sound sounds like it was done in somebody's bathroom. You know, they don't have the money and they don't have the skills. And really, whatever you're doing, if it's an art form, you've got to have the skills. And then, you know, uh, uh, you have to have... Uh, uh, something to say. And I think that's true whether you're a musician or a, a chef or a modern brewmaster, something to say and the ability to say it. So, you know, I, I always had something to say. It's the ability to say it part that takes a lot longer to get. So within the world of beer, how did, how does that, how does that fluency develop? Like where, where did you begin? Where do most people begin when they decide to start communicating through beer? And is there is there a path that everyone winds up following to become fluent in that? Or, or do you think it varies? No, some people are fluent quickly. Um, some people never become fluent. 
Um, it really depends. I think that is in a way it's like becoming a chef. I mean, there are so many paths. Um, you know, I think that, you know, you, you, you have a, you have a path that runs through some of the cooking schools, which is basically onto food service. Um, that's one path. You have a path, which is more like becoming a baseball player and, you know, you do it as an amateur thing first, you fall in love with it and then you find your way, you know, to it through some system. Um, you have obviously, uh, apprenticeships and things like that. You have people who got thrown in and used to be a dishwasher or whatever else and worked their way up. Um, so, you know, I think that there's not like one legitimate path to becoming a brewer. You know, I think that one of the things, though, that makes uh, American craft beer particularly powerful, you know, is the fact that the story of craft beer is a story of a diverted life plan. You know, almost nobody in craft beer thought they were going to be a brewer. You know, we intended something else, you know, and we probably went out and got a degree and spent time, effort and money uh, arrived somewhere that, you know, for financially probably was even pretty good. And then you fall in love. But the thing you fall in love with is beer. And beer will make you poor. <laughs> um, and then you become poor. And then you spend the rest of your time trying to, one, do the thing that you have wanted to do and do it the way you wanted to do it and to hopefully not be poor. But the plan was always the same. It's the same as everybody else's plan. You know, go, go to school, get the degree. You got the degree, you get the job, you got the job, you got the money. You know, you can buy a house. Maybe you're going to have a wife and kids and the kids are going to have shoes and they'll have books and everything. And then you take everything, throw it out the window and leap into thin air and hope not to die. So what was the thing that made you want to take it apart? Was there one, you know, bottle of beer? Was there one like pint or you know, was it just seeing someone else do it and being like, I, I, I could do this. I'm, I'm interested in this. I think the, I think the closest thing that I really could put it, you know, to is falling in love. It is, it becomes an obsession, you know, and eventually it's the only thing you can do. Um, Were you a you know, home brewer? So, yeah, I was a home brewer. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I was also a filmmaker. Uh, interestingly, tonight in Williamsburg, they're playing a film on which I was co-producer in 1986 uh, called Betaville. Uh, I have not seen this film since maybe 1988. I remember a lot of doing the shoot and whatever else, but there's, uh, this is going to be really weird because I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to show up. Um, I might end up making some comments, but I will be seeing like some old version of me that I haven't seen in a million years. It's going to be so strange. So at that time in, in 86, 88, were you, was, the, was the obsession with beer already sparked? Yeah, but I was also stage managing rock bands, you know. You're uh, so cool. Which is, <laughs> well, I mean. Well, I, you know, no, I'm old. There's a, there's a, there's a difference, but uh, but thank you. Um, I you know I I moved to London in 1983, and I was stage manager for University of London Union, uh, which was a club and had about maybe 800 people or so. We put on a lot of great bands. Everybody from Cocteau Twins to Billy Bragg, you know, uh, uh, etc. I still have a lot of friends in music. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, when I was, I ran all the entertainment for Boston University when I was there, 
you know, I put on a concert in 1983 with R.E.M. as the opening band for the English beat. Whoa. Put on the Ramones. I took the Ramones bowling. Really? <laughs> yes. How were they? I would actually imagine they were not bad, you know, being it lasted, kids from Queens that, or something. That, that lasted approximately a minute and a half before we had to leave. Were you kicked out? Uh, I didn't even allow them to kick us out. I, cooked, I kicked us out after Joey threw the bowling ball about eight feet into the air and it came crashing down the lane. That's was, not how you bowl, Joey Ramon. Yeah, well, I guess when you're on Thorazine or something. <laughs> you know, maybe. Yeah, I guess those aren't the best <laughs> people to give heavy sort of, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, you know, I was I was just glad when they got to the stage and there were actually some words, you know, that came out of their mouth. They put on a great concert, but they were basically paralytic, you know, up until uh, that point. It was uh, it was quite a day. I guess they could but, pull uh, it out in the clutch, you they know? They pull it out. I mean, they were, you know, they, they were not messing around. But it's funny. It was like, uh, you know, all these things like stage managing, whatever else, you know, you kind of bring all this, you know, stuff with you uh, in a way to, you know, to, to, to what you're doing. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's all fun. But now, like I said, I have friends who are, uh, you know, who are musicians and I kind of watch what, you know, what goes on with them. Um, sometimes I end up on, you know, the other end of a, of a camera or whatever else. And it's just funny because I used to think I was going to be the guy, you know, looking through the viewfinder, uh, you know, telling my story that way. And instead it just turned out being something else. Did you get burned out on filmmaking and producing, or was it just that this other thing came along? This other thing came along, but I also came to a realization that um, I was a good filmmaker. I was a good technician. I loved it, but I saw people who would come along. I remember Robert Townsend, when he first put out film, and he said that he had signed up for 120 credit cards and he had maxed them all out in order to have enough money to buy film stock and whatever else to make his film. And I said to myself, it's like, that guy is the guy who deserves to win, you know, in this thing that I'm doing. It's like, that's what it takes. This guy is on fire to do this thing. What am I doing here? I'm, I'm having a good time, but I'm not like him. You know, I, I don't have such fire to do this thing that it just like burns, you know, uh, all the time and I have to do it. And, you're and I kind of realized that like the beer had become something that felt like that, you know, that I, I had to do it and I would do basically anything to, you know, to get there. And I was friends at the time with uh, Peter Berg, uh, who later became, you know, a, a, a major director uh, and and producer and you know we made music videos together and whatever else and Peter had moved to California and you know he said I you know he said I want to be a major director and an actor and he was very ambitious and he's he, he right from that time we were like 20 years old and he's like I'm gonna be you know top guy and he'd come back and he'd tell me about how great it was in California like he'd work on films and you'd have all these really great friends and whatever else. And I said, well, what happens when, you know, when the film's over? It's like, oh, well, you get some new friends. He's like, well, what do you mean you get some new friends? It's like, well, you, you can't really hang out with those people anymore. You have a new film, and now those are your friends. I was like, I, I can't live like that. I can't live like that. I, like, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, my friends are my friends. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to change, 
you know, those things around. And I just kind of, you know, realized at the time in New York, this wasn't the place to be. I was going to have to go live that kind of life. And it was a life that I didn't want. So how long has Brooklyn Brewery been around now? 1988. So let me do some quick You're coming math. up on a, on a big 30. 3-0. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what, 27 yeah, years? Yeah, 27 years. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. We just, you know, had our, our, our 25th. So it goes fast. You know, I got there in 94. And and since you've been there, like in, from 94 to now, it's it's gone from a very, I think, niche operation to being a major, major player in the craft brew scene. I mean, I, you run into Brooklyn Lager all over the country. Well, it looks like all over the country, but it actually isn't. Uh, we are mostly out east um, to the center of the country. We have a few outposts here and there. Uh, we're, you know, we're in Nevada, uh, for example. Um, we make beer for Thomas Keller and the French Laundry, which we have for, for many years. Um, but that's the only beer we have in California or anywhere on the West Coast. Um, our focus has always been, you know, uh, you know, our area here and kind of Eastern United States, but then also, you know, overseas, um, you know, which has been, I mean, since Brooklyn Brewery started about eight months later, we were in Japan. You know, we are we were all traveling people who fell in love with beer uh, in other countries before, you know, we came back uh, to the United States. So we were always travelers and we were always going to go. So this is a regional beer then, Brooklyn. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would call it a regional beer. It's not a national beer. Um, it's kind of funny. People, you know, people think that we're absolutely huge, but we have like 120 employees. <laughs> I mean, there are single restaurants, you know, that have uh, that have more employees than we do. <laughs> I gotta say, it's kind of funny because in college, I drank the worst beer imaginable, and then but Me ever too. since I, yeah, <laughs> I think that's but, what college is for. Yeah, but um, my whole New York life is like, you know, when I started to even remotely get into beer, and it's it's actually always been through Brooklyn. Like that's the thing I pick up in the bodega, and that's kind of the thing that I. It's like my you know, essential beer that I judge every other kind of beer that's like that against, you know? Well, you know, that's that's great to hear. You know, what's funny is that when Brooklyn Lager first came out, it's kind of almost difficult for, you know, to imagine now. But Brooklyn Lager in 1980 out, 1988 was really, really weird. I mean, first of all, no other beers were around that had that color. None of them had like, you know, it had four times the bitterness of the mass market beers. It had this hop aroma, which nobody even recognized. And you'd go into, you know, bodega and you'd say, you know, it's like, what's that you got? It's like, you know, Brooklyn beer. It's like, Brooklyn? Like, why would anybody name something Brooklyn? You know, Brooklyn was associated with crime and like, it was like the worst name, you know, for anything ever. And then it's like, you pour it out. It's like, what's wrong with it? It looks dark, (laughs) you know? And it's like, uh, it's like, what's that smell? It's like, well, it's called hops. It's like, oh my God, it's so bitter. You know, it's like, I don't want to get out of here, you yeah. know, and that's the way that it went. But in the in the last, I guess, 15 years, the sort of rise of Brooklyn as a commodity, like the the branded borough of Brooklyn, and now it's this global touchstone for, like, coolness and culture has presumably, I would guess, like, really helped buoy Brooklyn Brewery, because Brooklyn is now a, a cool word, not a crime word. Yeah, I think I think it goes, you know, it, it goes in both, you know, in both directions. You know, I think that uh, together with so many other things happening in Brooklyn, we were, you know, among the many things that helped make Brooklyn cool. But, 
you know, Brooklyn was always cool. It was just that people, like not everybody else knew it. Like I was going to raves and abandoned buildings, you know, in Williamsburg, you know, in the 90s. Um, you know, I had some of the best times of my life in Williamsburg. It was dangerous, <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we had fun. Most fun things were dangerous. Um, and so, um, you know, so there you go. But it's like, you know, as it, uh, you know, as the whole, you know, enterprise grows, um, you know, what I look to do, you know, as brewmaster is, you know, I look at, you know, what I like in beer, what beer means to me. And I think that I don't remember who it was, you know, that uh, that talked about this, you know, from a philosophical point of view. But to wake up in the morning and ask yourself, how how am I not myself? And, you know, it's like, how are we as a brewery not who we say we are or we want to be? And I think that, you know, success, the measure of success is kind of becoming the person or the company or the whatever that you always said you were, you know, in public. That is deep and powerful. But the thing is, everybody, everybody's fronting. Yeah. Everybody's fronting. Everybody's putting up a face like, I've got this and I've got that. I have these skills. Like, no, you don't. You know, you don't know everything. I don't know everything. Um, you know, we're not as good as we said we were. I mean, like, are we good? Yeah, we're good. We're better than those guys. But we're like really, really good. I mean, I think that only now, 20 years, you know, into it at Brooklyn Brewery, I, you know, I'm not saying that we've arrived at, you know, a vision of ourselves, but we can certainly see it like we're gaining on it. You know, it's within our, our viewfinder, you know, whereas, you know, in the past we made really nice beers, especially compared to everybody else, but we were a lot less special, you know, than we are now. So where I'm looking to use, you know, the fact that, we we uh, we we do have such great talent there and everything else, and make sure that we use that to go deeper, not to become more shallow. So, how do you guys develop new beer? What's the process there? There's there's a number of processes. Um, you know, some things are are based on you know looking at what we have and saying, well, what would we like to have. You know, look at our range of flavor. We make 35 or 40 different beers every year. What's the thing that we can't do, you know, that we can't do? Like you go, you know, you go into a, a, a culinary situation, which is important to me, et cetera. What can our beers not do? What foods can't they handle? What situations do we not have a beer to be in? And think about what would be really cool to have in that situation. And, 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 and kind of go that way. Um, you know, sometimes every once in a while there'll be a stroke of lightning um, where some ingredient steps out, you know, and, and, and speaks to me. I mean, really the best example of that is Sriracha Ace, which uh, is a very unusual hop flavor and aroma. Um, and for those who don't know, hops give you the bitterness in beer, but also a range of flavors and aromas, and they are varietal like wine grapes, and they are very different one from another, and there are hundreds of varieties. So Sriracha Ace kind of smells like lemongrass, lemon verbena, and dill. I mean, really unusual. Yeah. Um, and when I smelled it, I knew I could have just written the recipe instantly on the back of a napkin. I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it within, you know, 10 seconds. But that almost never happens. So usually there is a, 
you know, uh, 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 an idea that comes first, and then you figure out, well, how can I actually get to that idea? And I was really uh, somewhat inspired. I went to see uh, Ferran Adria's uh, uh, exhibit at the Drawing Center, you know, on creativity and looking at his idea of, you know, the concept of, uh, of, of collabor- you know, of, of, of elaboration of, uh, you know, of a recipe, you know, and what the levels were for creativity and how, you know, your audience, your people, your resources and everything, everything that, that goes into it needs to be focused through that. And, you know, as our talent at the brewery becomes deeper and we have just a tremendous team, we can just do things that in the past we basically just had no idea how to do. And it may take three or four different people's knowledge all put together that we can then arrive at a place where we can actually execute that thing. Because it's great to have an idea, but at the end of the day, it's like if you can't put the dish on the table hot in time, you know, then you can't do the dish. You can if you have you have a great idea. Your idea doesn't matter. You know, can you put the movie on the screen? You know, it's like you have an idea about the guitar. Can you play it? Is you there know? is there like a like the holy grail? Is there like the Fermat's last theorem? Like the great unsolvable or at least not yet solved problem in beer? Like the food that it's impossible to pair with, or like the the perfect thing that everyone is trying to achieve. I think everybody has a different one, you know, in their head if they even have one. You know, I don't have one. I have a lot of them. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I was one of the founders for Slow Food USA, um, you know, set up the national office, you know, with Patrick Martins and Carla Petrini and Alice Waters and, and whatever else back in, you know, back in the 90s. And so those kind of principles play very strongly through, you know, what we do. Um, especially now that the Nordic movement has come into food. And I was there with Klaus Meyer in 2003 in Denmark working on this stuff. Um, and so that aesthetic, that idea, you know, as we go to do things, you know, in Scandinavia, you know, a lot of that informs, you know, what, you know, what I'm looking to do uh, uh, with the brewery, you know, in the future. And kind of it's, it's all kind of of a piece. And, uh, you know, the beer that I, you know, that I brought along uh, called Lancelot, you know, is kind of a version of that. You know, it is a, you know, kind of a prototype, you know, beer, if you like. But the idea behind it is something that I'm figuring out how it could actually be brought to fruition. But it's very tricky. Should we get this beer, maybe? Yeah, we have a bottle of Lancelot go, here in the I'm studio. Go grab it. Get some glasses and try this out. Cool. Yeah. We'll need an opener, but oh, wait, <laughs> you, you think a brewer would carry an opener around with him? But one of these studio. I'm sure we can bang it against the wall or something. If we need to. <laughs> I don't think that'll work here. <laughs> it, it, it is a regular cap on it, but it's under some wax. But a, a good opener will work. We'll make it work. It's cool. You know, Greg and I have been saying for. I mean, we've been recording these episodes for months, and we've been saying that we like should always have some like bottle of booze on the table with our guests and like. You know, loosen up a little, little, loosen up a little like bit. A little <laughs> lubrication. Tell us all your secrets. But this is good. I like. I like that you brought your own, even if it, you know, makes a certain narrative sense. <laughs> well, you know, since you don't have smell of vision, people will not. Uh... I know. Well, we'll we'll have to make sure to like hold the bottle up to the microphone so that you can get the like. Ooh, yay! 
I would think by this point, you'd be pretty good at opening beer bottles. Yeah. And, you know, what's funny, though, is, like, I'm not as good as, like, I've never opened beer bottles with, a, with like, a lighter or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I can, I can theoretically do that, but I just never, uh, never got around to learning that particular college skill. So first of all, this is a beautiful bottle. This is a, is this something that is for retail now or this is not um, this is just some experimental I shouldn't even say that we sell it anywhere, but we you know um, this is what we call ghost bottles. you know mm. so these are all the things that we make that are not available to the public. Um, so how do you I, get I, it do, on I it? do sell a, I do sell a little bit at the four horsemen because those are all my friends. Oh. <laughs> So yeah, cool. the solution to getting your hands on one of these bottles is just to like befriend Garrett Oliver. What I like to say is that uh, if you have had, well, it's been true up until this point anyway, if you've had these beers, that means that you've met us ah. because there's no other way to get any. That's super cool though. That's like, uh, you, know. you know, well, what happened is, uh, you know, and, and this is, this is a good thing, um, but it comes with an edge. And it's almost like allocation, you know, uh, uh, in, in wines. You know, it used to be, basically, if I had a special beer, you know, there, may, there might be 40 accounts who might want it. Mm -hmm. And I'd call, you know, some friend up and I'd say, you know, hey, dude, I got this thing for you. And it's like, great, you got a thing? It's like, yeah, I got a thing. It's like, send the thing over. I'd send the thing over. It's like, and then he put it on draft. Everybody's like, wow, that's great. Everybody's happy. Now, 15 minutes after something goes up somewhere, you get a call from Tony from Tony's Sports Bar. And Tony sells 400 kegs of Brooklyn Lager every year. And he's been reading blogs. And now he wants to know why it is, I heard you made this beer with cherries in it, got aged in barrels, and re-fermented with champagne yeast, and I need 50 cases down here right now. And you're like, dude, I only got you know, a few, and you're a sports bar. It's like, oh, that's nice. Now you're telling me who I am. That's nice. You know, now you don't know me. How about if I don't know you? People, they, they, you know, they lose their minds. They, everybody goes absolutely nuts. And there's such a big hype machine around so many things. So what I've done kind of is built a defensive wall around where I have a whole range of beers, like 30 of them, that nobody can have. You know, and so I don't have to deal with any of that because it's like, nope, didn't sell it to anybody. Not going to sell it to you. Uh, I only have 100 cases, which is enough to make 100 people happy and 2,000 people angry, you know, which I just can't do uh, from a commercial basis. But if we're doing events and things like that, we can bring them with us. And if people want to show up, then we're happy to talk about them, pour them. And at some point in the future, ideas that went into this might end up part of a beer that you can buy on the shelf but it's not fully cooked yet. It's unreleased. These are like... They're like concept cars. Yeah, they're like, that's that's it, yeah. They're like like some weird car that looks like a spider, and it, if you wanted to buy it, there's one that exists, and it's a million dollars, but like in 14 years, it will be informing your Toyota Camry. Well, and I mean, I think every, uh, uh, you know, every restaurant pilots, if you like dishes too, it's just you don't see that part. In the case of El Bulli, it was quite famous because they were only open six months of the year, and they spend the other six months actually working on the creative and what Adria called elaboration, you know, your ability to put the dish on the table and to actually get it done. Um, but it takes, uh, uh, for a lot of these things, a huge amount of, of, of work to make anything that's new happen. If it's simple and it, and it involves barley, malt, yeast, hops, and water, 
that's a matter of writing a recipe, understanding your ingredients, and you bring to it, uh, uh, you know, the things that you know. But when you get out into areas that nobody knows about, then you have to, you know, you're 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 playing with a lot of different elements. So well, you got you got to protect it a little bit. I mean, I understand that you got to create a safe space for you to experiment and play around with. Well, the other thing that I take really seriously is, um, and I I find it's unfortunate that in the culture. Not everybody has the same, a lot of people do, but not everybody has the same attitude, um, is that I, I take other people's money really seriously. People work hard, you know, in this city, they get on the subway, you know, they're there, you know, at 8.30 in the morning, sweating in the middle of July, trying to get to a job, you know, that they're going to make money and then they're going to spend it on my beer. If you, if you spend money on my beer, that that really is a promise from me to you that the beer is going to be worth your money. Like I, I do not, I, I have no time for anybody who doesn't care, you know, whether the beer is really genuinely good. Um, it's, you know, it's the most important, it's the most important thing. And, you know, there are people out there who think, well, you know, they'll love everything I do because I'm cool. I'm like, you know what? Screw you. Screw you. You know, it's like people, yeah, that'll work for a while. And sure, you're a super cool guy and we're all super cool guy and whatever else. But you don't even care what the beer tastes like and you don't care about, you know, about your quality. Then, you know, uh, that's an insult is an insult to your customers. And so I'm not putting anything out there that I don't, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure that I, you know, that I believe in. And when you're experimenting it's hard to be sure. Um, and so, yeah, you'll see some things. I'll bring that out to an event and, you know, you'll like it or won't like it, but I can't promise you I can do that twice. So how are you feeling about, <laughs> how are you feeling about this Lancelot? This we're ghost, about to this, oh, it says ghost bottle a, on the bottle. Yeah. Well, we, we eventually, we used to just like write on them with uh, markers, but now that you have like 30 of them and, you know, you have 30 different things in blank bottles, mm -hmm. uh, eventually it doesn't work. So it's unusual looking, you know, it's a bit, uh, it's not flat though. It's a little flat looking. Um, this is a version of our Sriracha Ace that has been aged in, uh, in a wine barrel uh, for a year together with wild yeast uh, from a winery. The winery is called Bellwether. Uh, they are in the Finger Lakes area. Um, a lot of my friends, uh, are involved in what is widely referred to as the natural wine movement, which is, uh, you know, a near and dear thing to, uh, my heart too. And so we originally did this and we still are doing it with our good friends at the Red Hook Winery, you know, who are making, uh, great wines in Brooklyn, uh, grown largely on Long Island. And so when Abe Scherner, who is doing the kind of further out there end of, uh, of winemaking there, uh, supervising, you know, through uh, Christopher Nicholson, when his fermentations were finished and they moved their wine off of their yeast, they weren't adding any laboratory yeast at all. So it's all wild yeast. The wild yeast would then come to us and we would put it, you know, in a barrel with a beer and then the yeast takes over the, you know, the, the quality of that beer and drives it in a, in a, in a completely different direction, which has uh, a depth of complexity that I think is 
otherwise almost impossible to find. Right. So this smells kind of sour and yeah. apple-y in a way say, that I like find a, really like attractive. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it has a bit of acidity. It has a broader, you know, fruitier uh, kind of uh, character to it. It's got everything going on from like Jolly Rancher to uh, to kind of a, a natural cider. As it warms up, you get a bit more of that funk that you get from Britannomyces, um, which is kind of like a, you know, for want of a better term, kind of earthy fa- farmyardy uh, kind of thing going on. So why do you call it Lancelot? Um, I actually ran out of names um that we have so many different beers that you know you'd have something that says uh sriracha with riesling leaves like the, the names became so cumbersome some of them had like 20 different words to describe something so the beers needed a name so if i say we're going to send you know x to this dinner it has to have a name so i started to just i, I got out the biggest table i could find of knights of the round table and i started just going down the list. So we have Galahad, you know, which one that you would have heard of, you know, Gawain, Percival, Caradoc, you know, all, some of them are very obscure. Uh, and since they're not, you know, they're not commercial beers, they don't have to have commercial names or whatever else, but I need an identifier and, uh, uh, and I like those names. Do you think you're ever going to have an Arthur? Ah, that's an interesting thing. Well, Hill Farmstead actually has a beer called Arthur. So if I, if there is an Arthur it will not be uh, a commercial beer anyway. So this is something else. I can't say I've ever had a beer like this. I mean, I don't drink a lot of beers like this, but... <laughs> well, that's that's nice to say. I don't, I don't think you have had a beer like that because neither has anyone else. Um, you know, I mean, uh, this is an idea, which is, I think, a very natural idea, but not something that anyone is doing on any sort of scale. I mean, we started doing it about six or seven years ago. We have done a project now with our, our friends at the Thornbridge Hall Brewery in England where I wanted to basically send this idea in the direction of elaboration, you know, to use Audrey's word. And you can't do that in the United States because there's very little natural fermentation going on. There are a lot of winemakers that say, oh, you know, our wines are completely naturally fermented. Almost all of them are lying. Bastards. And well, you know, it, when you get, when you get the beer, you know, when you get the wine, you know, in the lab and have a look at it, it's uh, it, things become obvious. So, I mean, I understand why. You know, it's like okay, you know, you got one shot at it. You you can't have things going off in different directions. But there are people who are actually doing it, like you know Abe Scherner, um, and it's those people we want to use those natural yeast sets. And there's almost no material to go around. Where can I find lots of natural yeast? Aha, the UK has a large, old, and well-developed cider industry, which has a whole wing, which has always been naturally fermented. Uh, We don't have that in the United States. We have a few small, uh, great cideries. And it's growing, It is is growing. I mean, Aaron Burr, uh, Oyster River, and we've used lees from both of them. Uh, in beers, terrific stuff, but I mean it's so much more widespread. You know, if you go to Spain or you go to to to, to the UK, so we had we basically brewed a version of one of our beers. I sent over about 120 barrels uh, uh, to Thornbridge Hall, and in November, after a year and a half in barrel, we're going to go into refermentation 
you know, for the final finishing of the beer. But this whole thing as a project will have taken two years and a lot of money and a lot of time. And you still don't know whether it's going to work. As someone who is not a huge beer, you know, obsessive, I got to say, I'm very surprised by what you're kind of describing as the collaborative nature of creating something like this. Like I never thought so many people would be involved. Is the beer world just kind of, is, is that it? Is everybody really tight? Is everybody well, love to we, trade ideas? We were the first brewery to do collaborations, um, which is now a, 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 a normal part of the beer industry, of the craft beer industry. Uh, our first one, I think, was 96 or 97 uh, with Breakspear in England. And since then, we've done dozens. Every once in a while, they'll all have a reporter ask, like, I see collaborations are really going on between brewers. Have you ever thought of doing one? And you're like, um, <laughs> we started that, 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 was, that, that was us. Yeah. Um, and, and like the hat, uh, for a long time, uh, we stopped doing collaborations because everybody else seemed to be doing them. Like the hat. And it was like, uh, and it was like, well, you know, everything looked like me too. And it became like a photo op mm-hmm. kind of thing. But the guys at Thornbridge Hall are my actual friends. Like we go on vacation together, friends. Yeah, not like your quote unquote. Not, we not follow like, each other yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, friends, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah, uh, uh, you know, not just Facebook friends. So you know, it's really important to me that when we do things that are you know collaborative, that it's a hundred percent real. It's family. Uh, and that it's and that it's family, and that it that it means something. And if it's and if it's not, if it's just because like wow, you're a really prominent restaurateur. Or uh, uh, and you have a lot of restaurants, and we could sell some beer. I'm I'm never going to do a thing like that again. So I have this kind of general theory that you know everybody's becoming more, for lack of a better term, foodie, largely because of the internet. There's more information; people can just get their hands on it more. Like in the last 15 years, do you think that people's beer palettes have really expanded, or people you know requesting more interesting stuff? And and oh yeah, I mean the uh, you know it's changed really tremendously. It's changed rapidly and, you know, in, in, in a fashion that, you know, uh, is difficult to really contemplate now. I mean, when I first started brewing professionally, IPA was a British historical style that almost no one brewed. Today, only 20 plus years later, um, IPA is a modern American style that everybody brews uh, everywhere in the world. And they brew it in the American idiom. And so that to me is, is a fascinating development. And one thing I've learned over time is that, uh, you know, people have really, really good taste. You know, you look at politics, you look at this, you look at that, and you could think otherwise. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I've done a lot of tastings, thousands, you know, in public, whatever else. And I used to go into a room and you'd see a bunch of people and there'd be, you know, this you know lady sitting in the back corner. She's about eighty years old. She has a blue rinse, and you're saying to yourself, "Wow, we're about to serve this like powerfully smoked thing, or this really sour thing, or this twelve percent monster thing." And somewhere in the back of my head, I was like, "Oh well, you know, she probably isn't going to get it." And you think that you have a certain audience for your for your food. These are the people who are going to get what I do, and they you know. They hang out with the same people that I hang out with, and they probably have the same politics and whatever. And what you find out, of course, is that none of this is true. I mean, you know, she might get that beer, and literally she's like, this is the best thing I've had in 20 years. And you're like, wow, like, you get it? And what you realize at that point 
is that, you know, your feeling that she wouldn't get it is you telling yourself that you're special and other people aren't, which is actually not even slightly true. Like, how do I know who she is, where she's been? Maybe she was drinking beers like this, you know, 50 years ago. And many people, times people tell me stories like that, especially older people. It's like, oh, I was stationed in Belgium after World War II, and this is the kind of beers that we used to drink. Wow, this is really cool. I haven't had anything like this in four years. People are amazing. Or like young people who would be like, well, normally I drink Coors Light. Um, you know, I don't really like beer. Uh, I drink it if I have to, if I'm, you know, if I'm at a party and there's nothing else to drink. Uh, and then at the end of the tasting, she's like, well, I don't really like beer, but where can I get this, 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 and this? And they're always the biggest, most complex, wild things on the table. She's like, well, those were good. I don't like beer, but those are great. <laughs> you know? And, you, and, and, and she'll have made a leap in, in a half an hour that took me years to I, get there. I don't like beer, but I like this very sophisticated. Well, that was my exact experience, actually. I, I didn't like beer, or at least I thought I didn't like beer. And the gateway for me were these really crazy, super sour beers because there was some there was some point of entry like they were different enough from the like like piss water lagers that I had been used to attempting to drink that it was really exciting and there were, and and then I was like oh wait like now I understand and it was it was remarkable well i think you know to me the story of craft beer is really the story of american food you know you know, just written in a in, in a different, you know, idiom. It's in liquid it, form. Yeah, it follows exactly the same track as as everything. Bread, cheese, all the staffs of life, you know, chocolate, whatever else, they went through exactly the same cycle for the same reasons at the same time. So basically, you know, if you went back to the 1800s, you looked at New York, we had 48 breweries just in Brooklyn. They made 10% of all the beer in the United States. Uh, we had specialists in IPA, we had specialists in Porter, we had vice beer specialists, we had the most diverse beer culture on the face of the earth. We also had the most diverse food culture on the face of the earth because we have everybody from everywhere. So, you know, when you travel, you come to appreciate what it is to grow up here because if you go to even a good-sized city, go to Turin, go to Torino, and go looking for a good Thai restaurant. Right. You know, it's like if you want Piemontese food, uh, you're going to have some of the most amazing meals you're going to have in your life. But, you know, God forbid you should get sick of it, you know, because there ain't going to be anything else. You know, there might be one or two sushi restaurants or whatever else, but not that you and I are going to be, you know, the rest of the world doesn't live the way we do. Um, and so, you know, we get a lot of the best of, of, of everything. And if you look at beer, we had everything, but we lost it. You know, we lost it. We, we, we gave it up in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and we emerged into the matrix. Because of prohibition? Yeah, because of prohibition. But prohibition was only part of a process of the, commodi you know, the commodification of American food. And so even though it took prohibition to completely crush American beer, uh, other forces did the same thing to bread did the same thing to cheese. So by the time I was growing up, bread was a white chemical sponge that stayed fresh in a bag for two weeks. The thing is, you know, it was never actually bread. You know, we know that bread has four or five ingredients. Any five-year-old child can pronounce all of them. 
Bread doesn't have 40 ingredients. Bread doesn't stay fresh in a bag for two weeks. You can't roll a slice of bread into a marble and <laughs> flick it across the room. So then what is the thing in the bag? And what it is, is a lie. It is the matrix. It's a thing that is replaced, you know, as a facsimile, the thing that you used to know what it was. And in the back of your mind, you still know what it is, but you just haven't taken the red pill. And so, you know, that is the thing that we're all doing. I mean, and I grew up with three kinds of cheese. I'll still remember, I still remember going to France the first time, went to a cheese shop, and I was like, what is that smell? <laughs> and they said, well, it's the fromage, monsieur. It's like, cheese doesn't smell like that. I mean, I never had any washed rind cheeses, you know, I mean... There was shredded mozzarella. There was, you know, there were like three kinds of cheese and that, and that was it. Now you say that to somebody in their 20s, they're like, they don't even know what you're talking about. They, don't, they never grew up in that world, thank God. But, you know, I mean, TV dinners used to be like on, you know, on the television. They're like, basically it was a repeating cycle. Hey, look, we have a frozen dinner in a tray that you could watch while you're watching the TV and the TV is telling you to eat the dinner. You know, and it's just a repeating loop for making money. And that is what happened to American food. The Matrix. The Matrix. It feels like there, that there's been sort of a backlash to the Renaissance that's been brewing a little bit brewing. That's a terrible Good pun. Good one. Thank Good you. one, Helen. Ding. Um, <laughs> no, this, this um, I mean, I'm thinking specifically, there was a the piece that David Chang wrote for GQ a couple months ago where he it was like in praise of shitty beer. And he was just like, no, like, I just want to crack like, a late logger. And I had a good time writing a rebuttal. To that. that was like one of my favorite things I read in the I, last 18 months. <laughs> well, you know, it was funny because I had people high-fiving me on the street, like strangers high-fiving me on the street in Brooklyn, like, you wrote that Chang thing. Like, yeah, dude. I mean, yeah, you know, it, uh, it was hilarious. But I mean, I think that, I mean, I know David and I respect, you know, his abilities as a chef. But I think that there is a, there is a kind of hipsterism that is searching for, you know, for irony, you know, in, in everything. And so, you know, if you're going to get a kick out of making fun of the fact that people are having, you know, or, or enjoying something, well, hell, you can do that with anything. You can just say, oh, look at you and your tomatoes, you know, or your corn or your, or your ramen or, or whatever else. And to me, you know, that's, that's just lazy. And, you know, you can't tell me that you have a, you know, a tenuous relationship with, you know, with, a, a, you know, with the food world when you basically are the food world and you're doing Audi commercials. I mean, come on, dude, give me a break. Um, so, like, I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. But I think that he thought that, you know, someone was going to come back and say, no, you're completely wrong. Uh, beer is really wonderful with food and it does this and that. And what I said is what I was really thinking, which is like, you're boring me. You're just, you're boring me. Like, I, you know, if you don't, if you can't hang, then don't hang, but please don't play this out. And you see that I saw an article about, uh, you know, about somewhere about, you know, sommeliers, um, you know, and uh, how a lot of them like, you know, uh, you know, cheap beer. And I think it's the, really the same thing. It's like the odious bro culture you know, making its way into, and that's why I love so much about people uh, like Juliet Pope, you know, um, which is a great piece on her later, um, uh, at Gramercy Tavern, 
who has been working away quietly, not in some spotlight, but actually delivering really cool stuff to customers instead of, uh, look at me, look at my suit, look at who I know, look at who I've been hanging out with, uh, look at what winemakers I know, uh, look at what winery I'm in, uh, uh, look at all the look at all the whales I got to drink, et cetera. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's like let your work speak you know? for itself. Yeah, I mean, what, what Juliet does is she shows people something brand new to like. That's what a sommelier is supposed to do. Right. That's the, that's the job. And, you know, like, look, if you like, you know, you like some cheap stuff, we all like some cheap stuff. I like, you know, I haven't eaten one in a while, but I love hot dogs. You know, it's like a greasy slice of pizza. Love a greasy slice of pizza, you know. But like to, to go around telling people about it, yeah, you're boring, you're boring the hell out of everybody, you know. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you're using that you you're this is hinging on boredom because I read something kind of related into the Chang piece, which wasn't at all what he exactly said, but what I think is actually under it, like my my armchair psychological analysis of it, is that I think what he was really saying was that he was exhausted from having to care about everything really hard. Like that, that what you were, what you were talking about earlier, that, you know, cheese and chocolate and wine and beer have all kind of reemerged and they've had these like re-blossomings and people are aware of them and they're excited about them. And for a certain sort of person, and especially I think if you're, if you're in a position of, of great profile to, to sort of have to be incredibly fluent and incredibly passionate about every single one of these vectors can be. I would imagine extraordinarily exhausting. And so like you say, you know what? I'm just going to drink sh- like cheap shitty beer and it's going to be what I drink. And then maybe the way you process that because you are also famous and you have a big platform is not I'm doing this because I can't take on another thing. It's I'm doing this because it's a statement. Yeah. And, you know, but I think the statement is worthless. I mean, the, the thing is everybody has different sides of their life and of themselves and, you know, there are words that we don't have in English uh, or in American English. But one of my favorite ones is plonk. Plonk is a British term for simple wine that you just drink. It's the wine you drink at a barbecue, you know, in the backyard. And it's like we had some great plonk. And what it really refers to is like the wine's perfectly drinkable, but it's not of any consequence, you know. And it's fine. And it's fine. And, and the thing is... That is the actual wine market. You know, we, you know <laughs> we, we all talk about single malt scotch. We all talk about wine with cork and has beautiful labels and whatever else. That's not the reality of American wine. 90% of the wine sold in the United States is a bag and box or a jug with a finger loop. That is, you know, it is 90% at the bottom and 10% at the top. Crap, beer is exactly the same. It's 90% at the bottom and 10% at the top. What's the difference? The media talks only about the 10% at the top of wine and about the 90% of beer at the bottom. You know, that is a thing that I want to, if not reverse, I want people to look at it the same way. You know, beer is high and low. It was always high and low. Wine is high and low. You go to Europe, 
You know, it's the American who goes into a trattoria in Rome and asks to see a wine list. There's no wine list at a trattoria in Rome. It's red or white. Like, you know, get over yourself. You know, you go to an osteria, you go to someplace else, you want to go to a wine bar, there's going to be a list. But, you know, every little town has a cantina and you bring your own bottle and you fill it up for a euro. Wine is not special. There are wines that are special. But beer is not special either. There are beers that are special. It was always this way. And when you read old brewing books, they all talk about how to age beer properly because there were always beers that were meant to age. Not everybody got to drink them just the same way that we don't all get to drink DRC. But they were always there and people used to know about them. I mean, the, the oldest beer that I've had it was from uh, 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 1869. Um, and it was brilliant. I've had about 15 or 20 beers that are over 100 years old. And one of the bottles said on it, this beer will be best after 40 years, 4-0. I'm playing the long game. Yeah. Are I mean, you making but, any beers like that? Yes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> uh, the most recent of them is called uh, Hand and Seal. Uh, it's an old school, you know, British barley, you know, style barley wine. Um, most of it we aged in for a year in uh, four roses bourbon barrels. Uh, though I have a stash that I aged in some of Nicola Palazzi's cognac barrels, uh, which is like really particularly amazing. Um, sometimes we'll serve them side by side. One's a ghost bottle. You know, we don't sell that one to the public because I there's only Nicola only has so many barrels. So, um, and it was good of him to let me have some. I owe him more beer, but um, we. Um, <laughs> You know, we're, we're doing, and, and that's a beer that in 50, 60, 70 years, uh, you know, people can, uh, can drink and say, wow, that was, uh, you know, that, that was cool. I wonder, you know, wonder where this came from and maybe they'll find something about me. <laughs> so you have a couple of bottles of those like stashed in a time capsule somewhere oh, have, so you don't touch them. Yeah, I, I've, I've got, uh, I have, I have plenty of things, uh, stashed like that. Secret things hidden everywhere. But, you know, I mean, I think that it's important. It's like, uh. If people want to think of beer as one thing, but beer is so much more diverse than wine is. It's not even, you know, it, it is a culinary drink. You know, I can infuse it with coffee. I can smoke the malt, which people have been doing for thousands of years. Uh, I can use spices, which people have been using for thousands of years. If I want to put ginger in it or I want to make it taste like a cocktail uh, or whatever else, people have always done things like this. Wine is beautiful. I love wine. I know a fair amount about it. It has one ingredient. It has one ingredient, and that ingredient can't be caramelized, it can't be smoked, it can't be roasted. Like, if you want to go into competition when it comes to wine versus beer for a drink, there's no competition at all. Like, I would clean the floor with, you know, anybody. I don't care how good the sommelier is. They have, like, I have two arms and two legs, and they have one arm. <laughs> it's, <laughs> not it's not a fair fight. That's not a fair fight. I mean, because I can bring something that tastes like anything and no matter what you do, from Vino Verde all the way up to, you know, to like Madeira, you still can't win because I have everything. And all you got and, is a grape. And, all, and, and it's like, look, that grape, I'm not going to, like, if you if you're, uh, if you got some stash of some this or that, you're going to see me right there. Like, almost half my friends are in the wine business. So I get a chance to drink a lot of really, really cool stuff. And, uh, and I love it. And as you can see from, you know, from this beer, uh, some of that thinking 
You know, I mean, this comes partly from hanging out with guys like Frank Cornelius, um, you know, and drinking and drinking those wines and, you know, and having them over my house and talking about beer and talking about life and talking about philosophy and thinking about, hey, how can we get a bit more of the countryside, which has always been there, but, you know, even more directly into what we're doing. And so, you know, eventually I would love to have, you know, something where, you know, say this is coming from, in this case, it's upstate New York, but it could be Long Island or wherever else. And then you have a whole, you know, group of micro, you know, things going on microbiologically in that, uh, in that beer. But suppose that same set of yeast also rose the bread and washed the cheese and, and, and fermented those pickles and you could have a whole set of food that shared basically the same biology of place. Now, the thing is, like these days, like, like wow, that sounds really cool. That's the way people always used to live. <laughs> that's, that's normal. What's not normal is this kind of sterilized environment that we, or at least I, uh, uh, grew up with. So, you know, American beer, American food represents a return to normality. It's just not a normality that we can remember anymore because we were living in the matrix. There you go. Well, Garrett, it's uh, we've come to the time of the eater upsell for a thing we like to call the lightning round. Uh-oh. Yeah. The lightning round. This is nothing you have to be, well, maybe you have to be worried. No, I think I, I think, think it's, it's up okay. to you whether yeah. or not you want to worry. <laughs> so we're going to ask you some questions. and just... I, I'm pumped up. I'm completely prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Our first question was, can you do an impression of Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah. Wait, I jumped my head. Um, no, we're just going to you know, say the first thing that comes to mind or tell the truth or tell a lie. What, you know, say whatever you want. Recite poetry. Sing a song like you promised you would. Uh-oh. Um, so our first question is, if you are at the airport and you've got an hour to kill, how do you spend your time? Ooh. Uh, it depends on how far I'm going. If I'm, if I'm, if I have a, a, a big trip on, um, I'm going to, you know, go looking for a book or a bunch of like silly magazines, you know, to, uh, to read or something to, you know, to, to waste that time. In most airports, there's not that much good food, but I generally get on planes with my own food and sometimes my own drinks. What do you bring on the airplane? Cocktails. <laughs> how, do you, how do you bring a cocktail? You break it down into like sub three ounce components. Uh, yeah, it's in my it's in my quart baggie. If I'm going, if I'm doing the overnight flight to to Europe, I always have I always have cocktails. What's you know, your airplane cocktail? Usually an old fashioned. I love that move. You bring a sugar cube and everything. Uh, uh, I I bring what I do is I actually batch the cocktail first, um, and then uh, it goes in like almost it looks like a shampoo bottle, but it's not. You know, in my uh, little baggie. So when everybody else is choking down the cheap Chardonnay, I'm drinking. And usually the actual liquor came from one of our barrels. So we get cast strength, you know, of various bourbons and whatever else. And so I'll have like a cask strength cocktail, uh, usually an old fashioned. And I just ask them, it's like, oh, I'll just have a glass of ice, please. That is and they're such like, a pro move. They're like, you know, ice? I'm like, yeah, just the ice. And as soon as they're past me, I'm like, do, 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 do. And everybody else is uh, is drinking whatever they've been given. I'm like, yeah, like it's like I have a cocktail, bitches. <laughs> that is the most amazing airplane strategy. It's so heard. good. We got to start adopting that. Okay, so question number two: You're on a road trip. You're by yourself. You're blasting some music. You might be singing along to it. What's the music? LCD sound system. Ah, uh, yes. There you go. And hot chip. 
you know, and Lawan McLean. But uh, right now, I'm really also into uh, Benjamin Booker. Oh, yeah. Cool. That's very cool. That's good road trip music. Very cool. So our next question is, if you were not a brewmaster, what would you be doing with your life? I don't know. I would be, uh, I would probably be somehow in visual arts, you know, filmmaking or, you know, uh, possibly something involved with, uh, with music, you know, production. Um, but I think it would be, you know, it would be production of some sort, you know, and, uh, uh, you're a producer. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a producer, you know I mean? So, uh, you know, beer is the thing that moved me, but production, you know, is, and the process of making things actually happen is fun. So the last question is you're at the awesome bar that's in heaven and the bartender has your drink ready and you come up to the bar and they slide it across the, the marble. What what is that? I like that the bar in heaven has a marble bar. Yeah, everything's most things are marble in heaven. Yeah, could I? I, I have a question. Is this the only drink I'm getting, or will will there be other drinks? In the, it's, you know? a, it's the first drink. It's the first of uh, many. Yeah, it's the it's the, it's the first of many drinks. Well, you know, I think uh, you know it can never be bad to start off with uh, with uh, either a, a really good champagne uh, or with uh, with a Berliner Weiss. I mean, I would I would say that Fritz Bream's 1809 Berliner Weiss for you know for a first drink of the evening is one of the best things I've had in ten years. Awesome, sounds like a good plan. Well, Garrett, thanks for coming by the Eater Upsell, and thanks for bringing us this ghost bottle of yeah. delicious Lance beer. A lot that you have to put a cork in it and uh, drink the rest of it at the end of the day. It shouldn't go to waste. Yeah. I think we'll crack into that late thanks, on a Garrett. Friday afternoon. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, and it kind of is, you know. It's uh, wow, it's it's funny when you have the headphones on for now, like you know, like my you know, my ears seem strange. Um, but the complexity that's here, you know, the little bit of acidity, uh, uh, you know, together with you know the fruit, um, you know, and all sorts of other things going on uh, in the background, uh, really, you know, I really enjoy. And so as I learn stuff about this. I look at like, well, how can I bring more of this character into some of the things that we do? And, you know, what I didn't say, you know, just because I forgot was that, uh, you know, you have, we make beers like Brooklyn Lager, which we drink all the time, you know, but when you, you know, when situation changes or you different food in front of you changes, you might want something else, which is normal. Yeah. You know, it's like we don't wear the same clothes everywhere. We don't listen to the same music. You know, right. we're in every mood. We don't eat the same thing every day. Why would we all drink one kind of beer all the time? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That, that doesn't make any sense. And, on, and when it comes to wine, there is nothing wrong with Plonk. <laughs> I love that word, actually. Plonk? Plonk. On the next episode of The Eater Upsell, we're going to be talking with Yotam Otolenghi, who most Americans will know as the blockbuster cookbook chef of books like Jerusalem and Plenty and Plenty More. And any of our UK listeners will know as the author of those books, but also as the chef owner of some of London's coolest, hottest restaurants. Yotam is influencing restaurants all across America, I think, in a very subtle and interesting way. Yeah, he's the guy who really brought the Middle Eastern palate to the Cool Kids Club. 
There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.